We we could say tortellini like at the end of the episode, maybe. That sounds good. <laughs> when yeah. once they already like us, so that people don't turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> Um, hello, and welcome to Tortal Recall, the podcast where we reread the Tamara Pierce books and yell about them. Uh, I'm Abby, and my pronouns are she, her. I'm Aurora, and I use she, her pronouns. I'm Grace, and I use she, her pronouns. I'm Gus, and my pronouns are they, them. Awesome. So, uh, this is our second episode, uh, which is really just a continuation of our first episode, because we talked too much about the first book. We talked more than we thought we would. Yeah, no, we talked about a good amount, which was a lot, so now it's two episodes. Um, and so this is about the uh, the first book in the Alana series, which we did not say last time. The first adventure, Song of the Lioness. You guys figured it out. You're smart kids. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that all of the many listeners we have are very intelligent. <laughs> many of whom have never met us and are not related to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, many listeners who are not our blood relatives. <laughs> but uh yeah, we so we cut it in the middle of our social justice corner segment. Uh so we talked about queer things in the last episode, but now we're going to be coming into the recording and talking about uh race issues. So that should be fun. I mean, fun as in literary discussion is fun. Not fun as in remembering that books from your childhood were much more racist than you originally thought. <sighs> Our next episode will be out December 2nd, so keep an eye out for that. Yeah, and that's the one where we'll discuss, uh, or the beginning of our discussion of uh, In the Hand of the Goddess, what it's called, right? The second Alana book? That is the title, yes. Cool. Hey, I mean, it's possible it won't be an hour and a half long discussion, but I kind of doubt it. Oh, I really doubt it. I think it's going to be a long one. Oh boy, will it. Honestly, I think it might be longer. <laughs> My guess is it will be two episodes again. That seems like a good precedent, because the books are only going to get, like, longer and probably also thornier. Yeah, I feel like there might be more than two episodes per book in the future, but hopefully we're still on the two-episode level. We just love yelling. We have a lot to say. <laughs> we have so much yelling. I have so much yelling to do. <laughs> I have a billion. Uh, so the next topic I have listed uh, in Social Justice Corner is race. Um, yeah, the, like, imperialism in this book really mm -hmm. gets off the charts. I know we're going to talk about that later, but I was, um, like, pretty shocked by how hard she goes on, like, the uh, very clearly African-coded desert race. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and specifically, so, so right, there's the, the Bajir who live in the southern deserts, and they're a nomadic people mostly, except they have this one city... Um, and their names sound Arabic, and they're like... Yeah, their names sound... So, uh, so the, the city is called Persepolis. Persepolis is a real historical site in <laughs> Iran, like formerly Persia, so she did not try very hard on that uh. one. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, they're, they're very heavily coded, I guess, as, you know, vaguely Arab. But yeah, also, I so I would like to note that... Um, you know, I never really realized until this specific read-through, you know, the, the Tortolans are very clearly colonizers. The Bajir were there first. The Tortolans showed up, conquered them. The Bajir 
supposedly live in Tortal now are not represented in government, you know, are definitely seen as sort of second class. Like, I didn't realize how hard it went on that. I'm not quite sure if somebody has um, a little bit more insight on this than I got, or if it's clarified in a later book. Um, I'm not sure how much they are actually Tortalan subjects. They seem to be, like, self-governing to some extent, and to have treaties with Tortal, um, or to not have treaties. So they did mention in this book that um, the old king showed up and uh, conquered some, or, or assimilated some mm-hmm. Bajir tribes, but other ones just sort of made treaties with, um, or some of them, it seems like, didn't even do that. Some of the Bajir are just still out there doing their own thing. And I don't know if you, any of you guys looked at the map in this book, but, um, I mean, all, all Tamara Pierce books have maps, which is great. And if you look at the location in Tortal of um, the Black City and Persepolis, it's like... Persepolis, sorry. Persepolis, yeah. A little farther south than halfway south from the northern border, but, like, not much, like, you know, easily a third, almost half of Tortal is the Great Southern Desert where the Bajir live, and they're just claiming that territory, but it doesn't seem like they generally go very far into it, so, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's an interesting situation. There's certainly, I feel like, very, very divided opinions among the mm-hmm. Bajir yeah. about how they feel about, like, the king and yeah. his relationship to them. Yeah. Like, they're, I mean, they're honestly fairly autonomous, right? They mm-hmm. have, like, what's his name? Sir... Lord Martin, yeah. Who, they also mention, they, they keep saying, like, oh, yeah, he's racist, but he's fair. If he's racist, he's <laughs> yeah. not fair. Yeah, no. Yeah, I was like, that, I don't think this sounds right. Not okay. And they even specifically mentioned that he's tried to get the, the Bajir ruler of Persopolis ousted in favor of a, a Tortolan's white, I guess, white person and and they then mention you know oh but he's fair <laughs> that that's not what fairness is and yeah. th- this is like the one the one like aspect that they have of governmental re- represent- representation is that they have right the the one ruling position that is recognized by tortal that yeah. is bajir it's just this one position and he's been trying to get rid of it but apparently he's still like the guy they trust the most um to be not more horrible than that? Yeah, no, that that yeah. was icky. But yeah, it's, I mean, it, it, it is also specifically mentioned that part of the reason they're taking the squires down to Persopolis is because they need to learn about the Bajir, not because the Bajir represent a large portion of people who live in the borders of Tortal, but because they're probably going to have to fight them at some point. Ooh. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. So it does, I mean, it does, uh, you know, I know they're coded as Arab and, uh, you know, the certainly related to people who have historically been, you know, colonized and all that stuff. Um, but it does really make me think of sort of a, a Wild West situation where, you know, the Bajir are off living their lives and then you have the, the colonizers, the settlers coming in. And just saying, oh, but this is our area that you're living in, and we will fight to take it away from you. Like, when we want to. And we're training our young people specifically to, you know, at least to some degree to hate and fear you and be ready to fight you. Right. Even though they, I I mean, I guess I sort of had the idea um, in my head that the Bajir were, you know, mostly self-governing, which it seems like they are, but that they mostly had sort of their own nation and that bordered Tortal or maybe somewhat overlapped with it, but, 
you know, according to the map and according to the sort of lore of this book, you know, Tortal considers itself to own all of the land that the Bajir live on. It's not, I don't really think it seems like the Bajir think that, but it, it is much sort of more, I, I guess, imperialist than I thought it was. And a lot of characters are really racist. Like, Lord Martin obviously mentioned specifically to be racist, but there's just a lot of... George refers to a filthy old Bajir. Um, I mean, Roger's villainous, but he says something about, like, uh, as if sheep or herders and desert men know about things like the Black City, you know, even though they clearly do. And, right, even Miles, who's re- generally pretty good about sort of critiquing the society he lives in, says, you know, the Bajir are unusual, and Lord Martin does have a reason to resent them. Like, what is the reason? Yeah, I also, like, really struggle with this kind of, like, fantasy setup, um, or tropey fantasy setup, where, like, the only way we talk about race is nations, and uh, we're kind of supposed to assume that that means that everyone in Tortal yeah. is, like, racially... Um, homogenous. Like, it's, like, very homogenous, and then the only way that you know that people are different is if they are busier, and there's no other way to be different or to be racially different or recognizably of a different, like, background. It's just you are from Tortal or you are... Uh, yeah, I feel like this is another thing we should keep an eye out for. Um, I mean, I know there are some characters in later books who end up living in Tortal who are are explicitly not white, but you know, I I think as a kid I assumed that um, Alex, you know, Alana and John's, John's friend was not white because he was described as dark sometimes, but I think they might have just meant dark haired. So I don't know if there are any. It's very unclear. Yeah. Yeah, I was also reading him as not white, but then I was, like, thinking about the way race was, and I was like, no, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it's it's possible, but I wouldn't consider it canonical representation, certainly. Yeah. And I think it's hard because in our, like, criticism, we it's hard to not be like, well, this is the this is Tortal. This is setting up Tortal, so we should just assume that for the rest of the books, Tortal is in exactly this state of being racist and whatever, because I think that... She's figuring it out, and I think there's a lot of openings for Tortal to, um, even though this is kind of like our introduction to it, it can, the representations to it might change, and we should keep an eye out. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll have to, you know, I mean, we'll have to keep discussing these things as we go, but right, it's not, right now it's certainly a bit um, sort of stereotypical and and basic in its uh, ideas about various groups and all that. I had two other sort of race and imperialism related things to mention. Mm. Um, one is that, uh, this might come up more later also, but a lot of the academics in this world, um, including the ones that Tom studies with are Mithrin, 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 whatever, priests, um, who are described as wearing orange robes and specifically the one that, the, the ones that Tom studies with, uh, wear orange robes and study in a sort of monastery in the mountains and are very much, I think, described as similar to Tibetan monks. But I think there's no real indication of their race. So I'm sort of curious to see if we get any evidence one way or the other for that. Again, I think as a kid, I just sort of interpreted like, oh, these are signifiers that describe them as similar to Tibetan monks. So they're probably Asian. But I think that they're mostly just members of Tortolan society, so they are whatever Tortolan citizens are. 
that's just a question to talk about in the future. Um, mm -hmm. And the other thing is there's literally one mention of the word slaves in this book. When, uh, when Alana first gets to Chorus, they mention that there are slaves. And I don't know if that's just like, we know from later books that there are slaves in other countries. I don't know if that's just a trading thing or if in her head, Tamara Pierce had visualized Tortal as having slaves at this time. I don't, I can't think of another book in the entire, like, all of them that mentions Tortal having slaves, like, even, like, the prequels. Yeah, so I was wondering if, uh, well, I'm not sure about the prequels, actually. Well, I, I don't really know, remember anything about them. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it, like, we know that there's slaves elsewhere in the world, so it could be that, that she's sort of establishing, like, Chorus is a major sort of trading place, and maybe these are slaves from other countries, but, you know, it, it clearly implies that at least Tortal is not um, free enough that they don't allow slaves to be there, even if, like, you know, the fact that it's not mentioned in the rest of the book suggests that they're not a big part of Tortal in society, but it's weird that they're there. We also have to consider that, that when you have, like, a, a class of people who are slaves, they will often go unremarked upon. Yeah, that's true. Within a narrative. Right, and there's no reason that they would be a big part of um, Alana's experience as a young noble. Mm hmm So yeah, I don't... I, I think this might have been one of those things that she just sort of threw out there and decided not to go with eventually, but it's a weird one. <laughs> I have two more things, and they're kind of important. Okay, the first one is there's a point... Well, the narrative notes that uh, the Bajir hid their women in goatskin tents, which um, I found to be uh, slightly gross just because how mm -hmm. um, because of how uh, first of all, it makes a woman an object, right, of the sentence and of right. I mean, know, much like the the thieves and their women, you know, this is a female centric story, but she keeps treating women as if they belong to men. Yeah. Yes, and then also because um, you know, in white societies and in white Christian societies, and I think we have to acknowledge that Tamara Pierce is coming from a white Christian society. Yeah. Um, even if that's not what she's writing about, um, you know, we so often point at like brown Muslim societies and say, "Look how badly they treat women." We're not like that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Anyways, thing that we should uh, keep in mind as we move forward. Um, the last thing I had is, is this a white savior narrative? A white savior narrative, just very straightforwardly, as these brown people have a problem and these white people solve it and then they're the heroes. That's what that is. I would, yes, I think so. I think that that's something we're also going to have to talk about in later books because yeah. it just gets more that way. Oh my gosh, yeah, no, it's going to play a huge part in the third yeah. book. Yeah. But right, the, the Bajir have this, uh, you know, vague prophecy that turns out to just be about hair color. <laughs> that, um, you know, these, the, the dark one and the brightly burning one or whatever are going to come save them. And then that does happen to be two young children who are at least certainly coated white. Yes. Uh, so that's a little rough. I always thought they were talking about their horses. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I mean, their horses are connected to their hair color, which is kind of... <laughs> Actually, that's true. I love that they match their horses. I didn't realize that. Yeah, but... their hair matches their horses, and then their eye color matches their magic. It's just so cohesive. Also, like, very goofy. A little bit cartoonish. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, anyway, to get back to Gus's question, I think, yes, absolutely, it is a white savior narrative. It really reminds me of a lot of the tropes um, discussed on another great podcast, Métis in Space, which talks about indigenous narratives um, in fiction, and especially speculative fiction. And, you know, so much of this, like, they're, they're the white people, but they have this special connection, special magical connection to this traditionally non-white place. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. Um, I forgot, before we move on, I wanted to briefly touch on how they talk about the thieves and the people who aren't, like, nobles. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah, let's go for it. I don't know if y'all got this impression, but I found, you know, when she talks about, like, George and, like, the life at the... Is it the... Dancing Dove. Dance the... Dove. Dancing Dove. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say Prancing <laughs> Pony, but that is the wrong <laughs> book. Um, I feel like there's this like glorification of like the life of the thief. Yeah, I feel like this is just a weird fantasy through line, too, where like it's not good to be a criminal, but it is good to be a thief. Like, that's rad. Keep going with that. Yeah, it, it's good to be a thief. Like, he cuts off ears and like what he does is, like, justified, because he's cool. Right, the fact that yeah. he cuts people's ears off is just, like, fine, because he's a cool person. Ugh. Yeah, she's, like, 11 years old, and she just became best friends with the Godfather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's... And, you know, all of her friends go, and they become his friends, and they, like, gamble, and they drink and have a great time, and I don't know, it's like they get to experience this, but they don't. Right, especially that most of the main characters in this are rich nobles who are just mm-hmm. sort of, you know, don't need to do crime at all, but are, are sort of in this community of, of cool people who scoff at the law and everything. And, you know, not that I'm really into believing that the the law defines morality, but it is sort of... Um, I think definitely glosses over some class issues to say all of these young noblemen just go and have a great time gambling with the thieves. There would be very different consequences for them than there would be for anybody who isn't a noble. Right, and I mean, it does sort of portray it as a, you know, an exciting, fun life to be a thief and not, you know, there's no sort of um, discussion of what would make people want to do that or... Mm -hmm what life is like for the average commoner. Also, this, like, construction of... I'm so interested to keep engaging with it as we get into other books. In particular, I think it comes up a lot in the Becca Cooper books, which I haven't read in a while. But the idea of, like, the thieves having a governing body, I don't... I don't totally understand that, and I'm interested in it. Right, the thieves don't recognize the laws of the realm, but they do recognize George's laws. Because he cuts people's ears off. Yeah, because he, right. I mean, which is not really so different from how, like, John would enforce the law, which is definitely killing people, but it is sort of questionable that you have this, um, the magical land of thieves, which is very much romanticized. Yeah, that's a good point. Thanks for bringing it up, Aurora. Yeah. Yeah. We will get some, uh, some commoner protagonists a little bit later on, so we'll have to compare how those look. But I think we should keep moving. So, zombie author. We're going to revive the dead author. We're going to see what she thinks about things. Yeah, we're not doing, like, a super stellar job of death of the author. But, um, like, I the most interesting to me um, thing about authorial intent here is that, uh, as we talked about, it doesn't really feel like a book. And that's interesting. Like, it doesn't feel like a novel. It feels like 
Yeah, right. it sort of serialized almost. Like, it doesn't stand alone. Right. Like, I can't imagine just reading this and feeling satisfied with it as, like, a work. But, it, I mean, as you said before, it makes a lot of sense given that it was part of what was a larger book intended for adults? Yeah, so so it was supposed to be an adult book um, that was all four of the Alana books together, and then she decided to make it kids' books and split it up, which is also interesting because, you know, I guess uh, she she took out some of the more sort of adult content, apparently, that was in the original, but there's obviously still a lot of adult content later in this series, so I'm sort of curious about how they expected it to be read, and and it seems like something that could clearly be classified as YA today, but uh, they didn't, you know, it was the 80s, it was before the sort of boom of speculative fiction YA, so. And maybe it is coming from being sort of like a pre-YA, like before that distinction, Mm -hmm. because this book reads very much like a book that you would call a children's book, and the other books mm-hmm. are not that. And I remember remember as a child being Right, definitely like, by you, the time you get to the fourth... I mean, we'll get we'll talk about this when we get there, but, like, by the fourth Alana book, she's an adult doing adult things, so it's... And this one's so much a children's book, so it's interesting. The other um, author perspective thing that I had to talk about was that... Um, I think it's interesting that Alana is a very uh chivalry focused character she really is into the whole idea of knighthood and honor but we have um all these other great characters around especially miles but also you know um gary and maude and stuff saying "Mm, the code of chivalry maybe not that great (laughs) and the way miles talks about it too is very much like presents chivalry almost like i was like is chivalry toxic masculinity I think it is. I think chivalry is toxic masculinity. A little bit, yeah, I think so. (laughs) Hard phrase to say. Yeah, no, I I think there's definitely elements of that. And it's, you know, right, these rules that you follow that aren't necessarily the best thing to do all the time. And he talks about, like, it makes men be alone when they don't have to be alone and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And the most blatant place we see that is in the bullying stuff and Alana's response to bullying. Yeah, right, no, she has to... um, or she can't ask for help. She can't ask for help. She has to deal with it on her own. And the the only way to deal with it, like, she can't go to authority. She has no. to physically beat up the stronger person. Like, prove her dominance? Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is interesting because, like, speaking of authorial intent, because the narrative presents that as, like, this is exciting, but it's not the right thing to do. Like, you need to still yeah. be critical of that, uh, those ideas. Yeah, right. So I, I feel like the book is trying to walk this very specific line of, you know, it's so cool that Alana wants to do what the boys are doing and, you know, fight. And, like, it's it's really, there's a lot of, you know, sort of fun, exciting action and her learning to fight in different ways and all this stuff. But simultaneously trying to emphasize, you know, violence is not all the always the answer, even though it seems like it is in sort of the culture Alana has been mm-hmm. raised in. And, uh, you know, you get Maude saying that you've got a heel to offset the, the damage, and you've got Miles saying that um, chivalry is really hard on knights and also, you know, maybe not the, the best answer for every question. And then you even have um, Gary saying... You know, sometimes I wonder if they're um, trying to teach us to just take a lot of punishment and not, you know, protest at all. Um, 
which is very sort of critical of the structure of knighthood. So it's kind of trying to have it both ways, I think, of saying, like, this fun, exciting adventure of being a knight. Also, violence is very problematic. <laughs> I mean, even, like, when she confronts, how do you say it, Valone? Uh, the, the bully. Oh. What's his name? Valone? Right. Ralon? Ralon. Ra- 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 Him. Ra- oh, so yeah, Ralon. She, she confronts him, and she, like, you know, she fights him with their fists. And, but then she feels bad about it after. So, like, when I read it as a kid, I felt like it was justified because she, like, felt sick. And she's like, oh, I shouldn't have done that, but I needed to. Well, that's what the narrative tells us. Yeah, they even say that. Uh, yeah, Miles, I think, says, like... The difference between you and Rallin is that Rallin didn't feel sick after he fought people who were weaker than him. Yeah. But it still, like, necessitates the fighting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to have a, a story about training to be a warrior that's, like, truly uh, <laughs> promotes pacifism. Yeah, I don't know. I, th- I, I like that, um, you know, clearly Tamara Pierce is trying to emphasize that being a knight is not, you know, the best path necessarily, but... You know, I, I guess later on she'll she'll sort of present some different ways to be in the world with different characters, and I think that's good. Okay, wait, now we have my, my favorite uh, subsection, which there's not as much in this time, but we're still going to do it, which is shame that kink, <laughs> <laughs> uh, where we talk about how uh, Tamara Pierce puts her interests into <laughs> these books. Her uh, romantic interest. I just feel like so nervy around any character that is a different age than Alana. Like her relationship with Miles is good. Yeah, I mean we should we should note that there's not really any romance in this book, which is great because she's an yeah. eleven to thirteen yeah. year old. Yeah. But two of her love interests are introduced, and she meets both of them when she's yeah. ten, and one of them is thirteen, and the other one's seventeen. That's a big deal, that she's meeting them. And then also, like, her relationship with Miles is really nice. It's really sweet, but at the same time, like, part of me is this lens that's just, like, you shouldn't go talk to, your teacher shouldn't be that close with you. <laughs> like, yeah, you need boundaries, more boundaries. Yeah. Right, I mean, I definitely get that point of view. I do think that he's, you know, pretty clearly a surrogate dad, and her own dad is bad, and, like, I appreciate that, but yeah, it's, I don't know, it's tricky. Especially when you know Tamara Pierce loves those age difference relationships. (laughs) I don't, when I reread this, I was getting weird vibes that, like, a wee little 12-year-old Alana was, like, kind of into George already. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but it's hard to, like, backwards frame that relationship, because, like, when you're a kid, like, you have, you get, like, crushes on, like adults in tv shows or like substitute teachers like because you don't know about that but like there is the fact that she's meeting a future love interest spoilers um and then also yeah this is a little spoilery but the idea that even like her love interests you can get this these hints of like they're starting to treat her very softly and they have like a you know a sort of like goofy wacky sort of slapsticky scene where um she comes in to tell uh him that she's a girl and he's naked and she tells him and then he like dives to put clothes on which would be kind of like fun and funny if he wasn't again an adult who's her future love interest and she's like 12 and that both times that happens she's like well i've seen you naked before um to both him and john and that's like harmless and a good way of pointing out that we don't need to um 
be so shameful of bodies, except that you know that they're her future love interests, which makes it a really hard dynamic to read. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and and she never, as far as I remember, you know, tells anyone else, like, you know, I, I assume that she's also seen, you know, Gary and Raul naked, but, like, that never comes up, I don't think, when, when she reveals her, oh, spoilers, when she reveals her gender to them. Um, <laughs> so it is, sor- it is sort of specifically in the context of these future romantic relationships, and that is a little uncomfortable. Right, like, if that was just a joke that was pervasive throughout like many different interactions but it's not it's yeah in the context of her love interests but anyway we should probably save most of this discussion for later books where romance actually happens um so let's move on to the queen's riders which is our section about cute friendship moments (laughs) well we already mentioned my favorite one which is raul i love raul so much all her friends are so cute they're a little (laughs) gang of friends it makes me really happy yeah, except for John, who's bad. I don't like yeah, him. Yeah, but, like, um, Gary and how he, like, so gently teaches her about all these things and, you know, uh, helps her figure out how to not get too behind on her homework and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, right, Raul is, is just the best. He's so, like, protective of her, and he, um, yeah, tells her that they like her because she's different. And, like... Also, like, what a kid fantasy that you get to a new school and immediately, like, the older kids just think you're the shit. Like, they're so into your deal. <laughs> right, she only hangs out as a 10-year-old with 13 and 14-year-olds. Because they think she's so cool. And wasn't that just your dream? Yeah. Like, yeah. Grace, now you're living that dream. Sorry. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> oh, oh, I just remembered. There was also that nice little moment, you know, when George got her her beautiful wonderful horse yeah that was really Um, sweet and and jonathan was asking george about it and he's like you know you paid way more Mm -hmm. for this horse and george is like but for friendship and yeah no just i mean the whole thing where you know she's counting up her money and she she's like oh like i have enough to buy a horse but i'll have to you know not have sweets for a while and then she goes and it's the biggest sum of money (laughs) that she's ever paid and then you get the reveal that George is undercharging her by like 60% and it's just so sweet and tender. (laughs) It's really good. You just get to see her be naive for a second and like people protecting her not just from harm but from like having to face that naivety and like be broken in her idea of the world. She's just such a little kid who doesn't know how much horses cost but she's so excited about getting a horse. You know, clearly her mom was dead, her her dad didn't really care about her, but it's so wonderful that she has these people looking out for her, and espe- and also her, you know, her, her two surrogate dads, Miles and Coram, are just great. I mean, Coram especially, I just love, you know, the moment where, where she storms in after a week of training and says, it's too hard, we're going home, and he's like, okay, go pack, and then he doesn't <laughs> pack because he knows that she's going to come around. <laughs> And then we have a um, a subsection here, which, again, I think will be fuller in later episodes, but animal friends. Her horse is great. I love her horse. Her horse is very good. We don't have a lot of, like, friendship moments with the horse. It's just, like, the most beautiful, perfect horse ever, and she loves it. That's great. You know, which is good. Moonlight is the cutest name for a horse. It's really <laughs> sweet. I feel like that's also just a very, like, little kid thing, especially the fact that, um... That George told her, like, the, the Bajir who owned this horse, you know, thought it was too noble to give a name. And then Alana was just like, I'm going to call it Moonlight. <laughs> no consideration. Just like, ah, beautiful, Moonlight. 
<laughs> yeah, because it's got you know a, a golden hide and a and silver tail and mane, and it's just you know the most delicate, perfect horse. It's so great. <laughs> While we're in the animal friends section, we should mention uh, Ali Muktab has three cat friends. Oh yeah, that's oh, true. Yeah. That was great. I love how much he loves cats. And that instantly made me be like, obviously these people aren't villains. I think we were supposed to be a little suspicious of them, and I was just like, nah. Don't, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, and the, I mean, Alana specifically referred to him as like he's kind. He's he's kind of odd. Like I don't know what to make of him. But then he's just like you're like a cat. I love cats. I have three cats. <laughs> that was um, so I think that's it for the, that section. Uh, short but sweet. Um, and so now we have our uh, our spoiler foreshadowing section, which we've sort of avoided spoilers in the rest of this a little. <laughs> Um, but so that's, uh, night vision with a K, uh, <laughs> and we'll hopefully have sound effects that mark that this is a spoiler section. Hey folks, if you don't want spoilers for the rest of the Alana books and the Dane series, uh, please skip forward three minutes. There will be a musical cue for 15 seconds. Um, Aurora had a theory. I did. Okay. I mean, it's not a great theory, but it like makes sense. If so, you know the all of the magical creatures that we're going to see mm-hmm. later. Yes. Yeah. They are immortal. They cannot like they can't starve to death, which is something that's like I think specifically mentioned about like the Isandir. Like they're not being fed, but yeah, I think so because they mentioned that like the Brigir have been not have not been letting their kids go to the Black City, but they've still survived. So they, like, can't die via starvation, and that way they're immortal, but otherwise, like, I don't know, you can chop their head off and they're dead. So my prediction is that they're just kind of, like, vampires. <laughs> they are vampires. Yeah, that there's some yeah. there's some kind of immortals that just got stuck around in human land somehow. Yeah. And I mean, they're kind of described kind of like the gods are, in that they're, like, very tall and pretty. Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, I would like to note also that, um with respect to the other immortals that we'll meet later, in the the Black City is all, like, intricately carved and stuff, and Alana mentions seeing carvings of, like, lions with human heads and people with wings and stuff that very much matches the description of the immortals that we will meet in later series. Oh, there was a foreshadowing thing that's not quite foreshadowing. This is not foreshadowing, but I want to bring it up now. Um, Is Tom, when he writes his letter, he says... Give me a few more years, and then we'll give your smiling friend, Roger, a run for his money. I want it to happen so bad. I want them to team up, and it never happens. I'm sad about it. I know. I have so many, like, feelings about the siblings here, and they're just... It doesn't... It's sad. It is sad. They have such a cute relationship. And, and, like, the, the moment in this when Alana... So, like, they're, you know, they're only together for, like, the first chapter, and they, like, you know, they clearly, like, they're the, sort of the the only person the other one has, and they have, like, this goodbye moment, and then Alana says, as Tom leaves, like, something told her Tom would be very different when she saw him again, and that just broke it my heart. It even says, it oh. says Tom loves no one but Alana, and so he only oh. has her, and then we don't know, like, his experience with the temple could be, like, pretty bleak. And uh, it made me sad that they don't, like, write earlier. Yeah, I mean, it seems like he doesn't really... Like, she she gets this great new friend group of um, mostly awesome people. Some not great people. Um, but, but he's just kind of alone at the temple, I think. And so she's still kind of the only one that he has. And 
I wish it turned out better. <laughs> All right, that concludes our spoiler section. Uh, so now we're moving on to Chamber of the Ordeal, which is where we rate this book, and it's a kind of intense name for a not very intense rating system. Uh, so should we do, like, ratings out of five? Ten. I feel that ten is traditional. Ten? I, yeah. I'll feel less mean if we do ten. Okay, so we're going to rate this book out of um, ten on nostalgia and animal friendship, and then we're also going to say who we would recommend it to. Okay, um, I would give this book like a seven on nostalgia because I was surprised by like, I really didn't remember a lot of like the intricacies of the actual timeline and events of the book, but like the vibe is just the vibe of my childhood, you guys. So I was really happy yeah, to return no, to I it. Yeah, I feel the same way. Um, yeah, and visit all my friends and I was just excited to read it again. Um, and then uh, for animal friendships, you know, not enough animal friendships like a four or a five. There is that beautiful horse. <laughs> and then who would you recommend it to? You know, I'm going to stick with, um, I've recommended this to like a lot of uh, like the young girls in my life um, at various times. And I'm, you know, despite our misgivings on some certain topics, um, and I think you should have conversations with the young women in your life that read this book. Um, I really think that most young girls should read this book and young people in general. I think it would be uh, a good time for them, and I like the I like the story. I like the characters. I think they're good heroes for young people to have. Mm -hmm. Okay, <laughs> so nostalgia, I give it a solid uh, <laughs> six out of ten. <laughs> six out of ten. Like I had a great time reading it, but it didn't give me the like, oh, that happened as much as I've had it. Other times I've maybe I've just reread it too much. That's not to undermine it anyway as like a work, but the nostalgia was certainly less this time. Animal friendship. So with a view looking forward, this one definitely gets like a two out of ten in my head. Just thinking about future beautiful, beautiful animal friendships we're gonna run into. That's true. Um and with regard to who I would recommend this book to, I mean, I think all of the youths should read it like and so when i was a kid i made my mother read this book mm -hmm. good and i think it's a good book to make i don't know like parents read their children so then the kids can also get like the more critical perspective on things and parents should just read more ya it's a good idea yeah. mm -hmm. um but seconded to yours grace all of the youths yeah Okay, Gus, you want to go or should I? Uh, I guess I'll go. Okay. Um, let's see. On nostalgia, um, oh man, in my notes, I rated it broken heart emoji out of 10. <laughs> uh, the last couple <laughs> chapters were rough, guys. Um, yeah. There was some good stuff, though, so I think I'm going to give it like a 4 out of 10. Um, I really like Raul. I'm glad that he's really holding up. I love him a lot. Um, I liked <laughs> I liked both George and John way more than I expected to, and I love Alana. She's great. Um, and let's see. Oh, animal friendship. Um, I'm not really a horse person. I know it's terrible, 
and and <laughs> there weren't really like moments where Alana bonded with her horse. It wasn't like there a wasn't a lot of actual yet. friendship with the horse. There was just like she meets a horse and the horse is beautiful. Um, but there were three cat friends mentioned, so for that I'm giving it three out of ten for animal friendship. Um, I as for who I'd recommend it to. Let's see. Um, yeah, I would I would recommend this to. Um, either a kid who I am, like, you know, in contact with, like, you know, and get to talk to a lot so that I could have conversations with them about it. I would also re- recommend it to people who had already read Cal, I think. Yeah. Um, so, like, I would recommend it as, like, you you should read this, but you should read Kel's books first, because they're really, like, a good introduction. I would say, um, I would rate it five out of ten for nostalgia because uh yeah i i really like seeing you know alana and rule and these characters that i love as kids and it's fun and charming but also there was a lot of upsetting stuff that i didn't remember which did cut into it um and animal friendship um i guess i'll also go for three out of ten uh mostly i mean i'd say two for the horses and then an additional one for the cats which i did not remember but gus mentioned them and now i'm very into the cats <laughs> um and yeah i would say i would recommend it to um right either kids that i'm in close contact with and can talk to about it or um kids who can maybe read it with their parents and have them explain some things to it i mean definitely i highly recommend it to young kids but hopefully ones who have someone to help them interpret everything that's in it and sort of place it in context. Okay, so uh, that's Chamber of the Ordeal. So um, that's the end of our segments. So We did it! We did it, guys! We did our first adventure! That's Tordal Recall! Yay! That's Tordal Recall! <laughs> yeah! You can find us uh, on Twitter at Tordal Recall uh, or on Tumblr at tortalrecall.tumblr.com. You can email us at tortalrecall at gmail.com. Yeah, please get in touch with us any of those ways if you have things that you think we should know about or things that you think we should talk about or any of that. And hopefully we'll be on iTunes by the time this comes out also, so you should rate and review us there. Our next book is going to be the second Alana book, In the Hand of the Goddess. It might not be all the same people here, but definitely some of us, so get hyped for the second book. Uh, Aurora, would you like to sign us off here? See ya, Tortellini! There we go. We did it. Yeah. This is Abby uh, popping in a little bit later. We forgot to thank our music, which is a cover of Green Sleeves by Zeta, which you can listen to on SoundCloud. Uh, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>